What is up, you beautiful people? Welcome back to the Built on Bitcoin podcast, where we cover everything going on in the Bitcoin ecosystem. This is your home for Bitcoin innovation. So we're talking to the builders, the founders, the movers and shakers that are trying to unleash Bitcoin in all of its facets. I'm your humble host, Jacob Brown, but you'll see me around as Jake Blockchain. And today, I have a fantastic conversation with Trevor Owens. Trevor is the managing partner at Stacks Ventures, which, as the name sounds, is a venture arm inside the Stacks ecosystem that funds Stack startups. And we cover a ton in this conversation. We talk about Stacks, uh, the Bitcoin thesis. We talk about his background, what he did before he was an investor. Um, he has a great response for my typical last question of the uh, podcast of if you couldn't fail, you've just been executing perfectly. You know, what does five years from now look like? And he gave us his, his ultimate dream goal and what his kind of life's mission is, which I thought was a fantastic response, the answer he gave. So we cover a ton. The Stacks token stuff has been going on. Bitcoin maxis a little bit here and there. Uh so yeah, you don't want to miss this one. Highly, highly recommend, especially if you're a builder and you're interested in trying to get a leg up and some actionable insight, this one's for you. So let's jump in. But first, real quick, a word from our sponsor. We all know Bitcoin is for the innovators, the revolutionaries, and the builders looking to build a better world for themselves and for the next generation. We also know the saying, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is right now. The same thing applies to building on Bitcoin. If you want to come build with the most active developer community, building new use cases for Bitcoin, then it's time you make the leap to learning Clarity. Clarity is the Stack's smart contract programming layer, which enables us to work on DeFi, smart contracts, and so much more, all built with the safety and security that comes with Bitcoin. Start today by going to start.stacks.org. Start.stacks.org has a five-step journey that will take you from complete Stacks novice to teaching you clarity all the way to finding a job with a Web3 Stacks startup. Don't wait another month, year, or decade waiting to get involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Start building on Bitcoin today. Go to start.stacks.org to start learning and building today. All right. So thank you to the Stacks Foundation. Now, without further ado, cue the sexy segue music. Welcome to Built on Bitcoin. Trevor, how you doing, my man? Good, man. How about you? I am a little, a little sleepy, but super, super excited to have you on. Uh, yeah, this there's a ton to talk about. You are a, a figure in the stack space. Um, so yeah, it's. I'm not even sure where to where to dance around at first, but maybe for people that aren't aware of Trevor, what is what's a little bit of your background? Yeah, so I'm the managing partner of Stacks Ventures. My background is as an entrepreneur, um, advisor to startup companies, as a, a developer as well. So I got started um, about uh, 15 years ago building companies since I was in university. My first business is actually importing scooters from China to the U.S. If you kind of Google my 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 scooter story, it was a, actually a failure that led to my next venture, which was 
uh, going around the world teaching people about Lean Startup, which is about how to validate your your startup ideas before you build them and invest too much time and money in uh, in them. And so I um, met up with the the author of the Lean Startup, uh, Eric Reese, before he wrote the book. Um, he was sort of like a mentor to me. I learned a lot from him as well as from many other um, people in the Lean Startup community, like Brent Cooper, who we've actually brought into the accelerator about this uh, customer development process. And I I created the one of the largest um, grassroots organized startup training camps called Lean Startup Machine that we did in um, something like 150 cities around the world. And you know, we created a bunch of tools. I worked with with uh, Gracing, who's the the uh, the creator of Crash Punk. She's my co-founder, and she did all like you know all the branding for Lean Startup Machine and ran a lot of the workshops. And um, you know, we consulted with some of the largest Fortune 500 companies in the world, like uh, GE, American Express, um, you name it. Microsoft. Like if if there's a company, if there's a Fortune 500 company doing like innovation or tech, they've been probably been through my training camp. And um, I also went over to China and started teaching uh, innovation to Huawei and Tencent, which was a very interesting experience. Um, and along the way, I, I advised you know uh, hundreds of founders around the world. Uh, one of the founders that I, I worked more closely with was the founders of Stack. So uh, Ryan Shea and Mani Bali, when they were getting off the ground. Um, it was originally originally they were they, they went through multiple iterations you know i met them when they were literally just first getting started i had known i had known ryan for a while and he introduced me to Maneeb. and the the beginning they were even talking about doing you know medical health records and they got into uh when when bitcoin started getting popular in 2012 they went all in on it um they were the reason i first bought bitcoin I had uh, over 100 Bitcoin at one point. Uh, sold it all when it was going down. On the uh, and um, you know uh, over the years, um, you know, I was just very impressed by everything they were doing. I was continuing to um, basically build software and launch products in the startup space, so helping entrepreneurs start startups. Um, launched about five different products, trying to help entrepreneurs uh, use a lean startup method. Um, to launch their businesses, uh, various success successes, levels of success. Um, nothing that was a, a, a home run or slam dunk or a, sort of a blockbuster product. Um, and you know, I, I built a lot of the products myself, um, full stack in uh, mainly in Ruby on Rails, but I also love uh, Elixir. Uh, Phoenix is a, a program for me I really like. Um, with respect to Ninja Alerts, which is a, also uh, in addition to Saks Ventures, I also run Ninja Alerts, which is an NFT um, alerts tool that allows you to follow wallets on Ethereum and get alerts when people are buying, minting, or selling uh, different NFTs. You know, we built that in um, in Node and React, so I'm pretty well versed on the technology side. And um, yeah, I, I approached sort of the team at Stacks when they first launched uh, Stacks 2.0. I'm still had my advisor um, advisor token allocation. I haven't I haven't sold a single one of those. In fact, my stacks stake is much higher than my you know original advisor share now because I flipped a ton of NFTs on Ethereum and then reinvested a lot of that back into stacks. Um, and so I, I approached them when they launched Stacks 2.0, and you know they um, I was actually building accelerator management software, and they were like, "Oh, we need." We need someone to run our accelerator. Can you, you know, 
we don't need the software, but can you just run the accelerator for us? And so that's how kind of we got started. Um, put together a great team of which Jake, you're part of. Um, you know, Kyle, my my partner. We have Andrea, Francisco, and now Nikita on the team. And we've invested in 45 companies um, in the Stacks ecosystem. I've made some investments myself uh, outside of Stacks, mainly in companies run by friends of mine or things that are strategic for what I'm doing in the NFT space. And I'm just super, uh, of course, Stacks Maxi and passionate about Stacks and Bitcoin. And I, I see value in everything that's that's being built in Web3. And that was a big shift for me. In, um, you know, a year ago, I would say I went from being a complete skeptic to a complete believer in a very short time. When you started that, you mentioned the scooter story, which there's an interesting video you can watch on that one. And it kind of shows some of the the lean startup methodology about validating your ideas, MVPs, this kind of thing. Um, but when you think about entrepreneurship, actually, maybe to lead into this, were you entrepreneurial as a kid? Not really. I think as a kid, I was mainly like a nerd. I mean, I did coding when I was a kid. I think, um, you know, in high school, I took like uh, four years of coding. Um, I was lucky that my actually my school even had it. I think it was kind of, it's kind of rare looking back at, I mean, it's more popular today, but not many schools even have offered programming courses. I was really good at that. I was really good at computers, um, but mainly a gamer. I did when I was, a, when I was in, I think before high school, like middle school, I started my own, my own guild, my own uh, uh, guild on Diablo 2. That's the most entrepreneurial thing I did, but it really came down to um, when I was in high school. And I wasn't even that really ambitious of a, of a kid, to be honest. I guess I was kind of ambitious, but what really motivated me, like I was ambitious in athletics. So like I was captain of the wrestling team in high school. I was, um, you know, ranked number one, um, my senior year, I ended up getting injured. And that was a big, uh, turning point for me because uh, it was a kind of a point of suffering. Like it was a, it was a, uh, I, I like, I lost my identity. I, my girlfriend broke up with me at the time, my first girlfriend. And that sort of made me really ambitious. And I happened to be a part of a um, this uh, high school program called Future Business Leaders of America. I don't know if it's, if it's still around today, but basically, um, and I, I went to high school in New Hampshire. And so what I did was every summer I would like compete in a programming competition and I like, and I like basically won. So I like, I won like the state uh, in this Future Business of America. They had like a C++ programming competition and, uh, I, forget, I, th- I competed in the C++ one and I think I got second or I can't remember. And then I also did, a, there was a web design um, competition. I won first in that. Um, or maybe I got second, the visual basic. I think I won like second and first twice or something like that. And then they would pay for me to go to this like inter- uh, national conference. And um, that was a lot of fun. And there'd be like motivational speakers there who would talk about like, you know, how to start your own business and like, sort of like Tony Robbins type stuff. And that sort of really got me interested in starting businesses. And then I start my, started my first web design company like in high school and then leading into um, university, started the scooter company. I was going to go to Wall Street because I went to uh, NYU Stern for undergrad and then decided that I didn't want to do that. And then got into, um, I actually had this fantastic professor named Larry Lenahan, who is a venture capitalist in New York City at NYU. He had invested in like Pinterest and Second Market, which was uh, what Barry Silbert, the founder of DCG, his previous company. And like, it was this amazing course. A friend of mine 
uh, I almost didn't sign up for it. A friend of mine basically, um, cause I was studying Chinese and I met this kid at the, um, when I transferred to NYU, you have to like take a, a placement test to like figure out what level your, your Chinese is. So I met this kid, Mel, who became a good friend. And I was like, what, what course are you taking? He's like, I'm taking this entrepreneurship course. This professor looks like Gordon Gecko. He has like a three piece suit. And so this is Larry Lenahan. If anybody uh, knows him, you'll take a laugh. But in that class, um, basically, um, the founder of Chainlink was my project partner. So Ser- Sergey Nazarov took the court class with him. Actually, me, Mel, and Sergey started a company in Larry's class. And then I think it was the next year, uh, Kyle Samani, who founded Multi-Chain Capital, multi- it was a multi-coin capital. Anyway, he's like one of the biggest crypto VCs right now, big Solana guy. Um, he was in the next class. So it's kind of like, uh, I don't know what my, my point is, but just kind of telling my story, uh, been through some, some an interesting journey here. Um, and it actually was Larry who really, you know, was the reason why I didn't go to Wall Street because he always said, the older you get, the harder it becomes to start a business. Like you, you know, you get, um, you know, you get a mortgage, you get kids, like you have more risk. Like the best time to start a business is like, even when you're younger, you don't know anything, you're inexperienced. It's actually much better to start a business then than trying to go like to the corporate world and like then start a business later because you're going to have more risk. And so he was always like, if you have an idea, you should start now. And if you're in your twenties and you fail, like that's actually like fine. Like, you know, it's much better to fail in your twenties and that might suck, but you know, at least in your thirties, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll know exactly what to do. And actually that's kind of exactly where I'm at now in my life because, you know, I had all these different launched so many different products and like some of them were pretty successful, but nothing super successful, but the lessons that I learned along the way, super priceless and you know, my, my goal with Stacks Ventures is really to save all of the founders that we invest in from making the same mistakes that I made. So I think that's part of the value that we bring to the table. The amount of people I've seen who have learned some amount of entrepreneurship through gaming, like RuneScape for me or WoW oh, yeah. or Diablo, like you learn about free, the free market and how to sell and all these different things, like the value of maybe holding now and re- reading the market, all these different things. Uh, but you mentioned entrepreneurship is it's kind of a young man's game is is like how it's how it's touted and entrepreneurship is also kind of in vogue in the past decade or so like everyone says they want to do it do you think that on, in the broad landscape of just like people working jobs it's entrepreneurship for most people i think it's for everyone but i think um you know i don't i don't particularly think it's a young man's game i think actually the vast majority of successful entrepreneurs are in their 40s um, and the average successful entrepreneur, I think they have like 12 years of work experience. If you look at like brick and mortar businesses, 13 years for like a, um, tech, it's like 12 years. Um, but the difference is like, if you start young, like that's the fastest way to, to develop yourself as an entrepreneur, you know? And of course, like talent plays into it a little bit, you know, like, um, I wouldn't be a very good basketball player. You know, I'm not tall enough, you know, I don't have the sort of the, the DNA, but I think in terms of entrepreneurship, um, you know, anybody can do it. And I think what we're seeing with the creator economy is that more people are doing it. And so it doesn't mean like to be an entrepreneur doesn't mean that you need to be, you know, the next, uh, Jeff Bezos or, you know, Elon Musk. Uh, that's, that's pretty unrealistic. I think, you know, um, 
maybe no one will be the next Elon Musk, you know, there'll be like one person, you know, but anybody can start something from nothing. Anybody can take an idea and bring it to life. And we're becoming better at, at explaining how that actually works and te- teaching entrepreneurship as like a form of management. That's kind of the vision of Lean Startup. Uh, as Eric Reese's original vision was like Lean Startup, the goal is to turn the art of entrepreneurship into a management discipline. Just like a hundred a hundred years ago, there was no MBA school. You know, there was no idea of like modern management a hundred years ago. And so you look back, you know, twenty years ago compared to what we know now about how to build startups, it's completely completely night and day different. And we have much more best practices and frameworks that can allow anybody to, you know, work on a project. And whether that be like you said, the net, you're trying to build the next Amazon or whether it's you're trying to build an NFT community or you're trying to build um, an open source project. You know, entrepreneurship is a skill that's valuable for everybody, you know, whether you're an artist, a developer, or no matter what you want to do. If you want to work in a big company, you need to know how to, you need to know, understand innovation and entrepreneurship because more and more big companies are facing the innovator's dilemma and struggling to keep up with just the rapid pace of, of change that we're going through as a society and in the marketplace. So I think that everybody should uh, at least dabble in entrepreneurship in their lives. Yeah, I've definitely felt that. There's like a switch to go from being a consumer to a producer. Like it's, it's kind of a worldview shift where you're kind of looking for things that you can create or white space that it currently exists that isn't being served by the market. Um, when you look at when you look at a good founder, what are the kind of like characteristics or personality traits that make that like top tier founder that people can kind of like work on themselves and and build? I think the most important thing is rationality. So the ability to understand cognitive biases and sort of overcome them, the ability to make good judgment and good decisions. I think judgment is by far the most important thing in a good founder, but the the cool thing is that your judgment can improve over time. I mean, the more experience that you become, um, the more you learn and your judgment improves from experience. And so you need to have um, work ethic, determination, drive. I would say the first most important thing though is that adaptability and rationality around, you know, um, being able to to make good decisions based on data and intuition and taking feedback and, and listening to people who know what they're, uh, you know, who are giving valuable feedback. Um, also just coachability. So, you know, if you have like too much drive and determination and not enough flexibility, like you're almost guaranteed to fail because you're just going to go in the wrong direction and keep driving and being super stubborn. But if you can mix that drive and determination with the intellectual and strategic flexibility and that sort of level of rationality, then you know you're going to be super successful at some point. Like whether it's this business or the next business, um, staying staying uh, intellectually humble and being driven, and and also I think being guided by a higher purpose, um, you're gonna you're gonna bring a lot of value into the world. Perfect. Okay, I'm going to take a, a slight left turn, move us into, into crypto land a little bit. And uh, I want to start with, you wrote a Medium post in 2013 titled, Why Bitcoin Won't Be a Bubble. And yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy. There's certain things you read, like when you read the Bezos 
shareholder letters, especially like the ones in like the late late 90s, they feel like this is Amazon in the sense of like everything he said 20 years ago is exactly he just perfect vision execution, but he had the like the the right mindset from the jump. Uh but it's funny as like a little time capsule to read this because the first line says as Bitcoin's reached mass market awareness, a debate has erupted as to whether Bitcoin's a bubble or word world changing technology. Especially that first piece of like it's crossed the chasm almost uh-huh. almost almost a decade ago. Feels feels yeah. weird. It feels like we're still just crossing the chasm. Yeah. Uh but I I'm curious I'm curious for you, what what do you find so fascinating about the crypto space? Yeah, man, I totally forgot I wrote that. That's really funny. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, my original hypothesis around Bitcoin was simply around remittances, an alternative to Western Union. I thought, you know, I for me, I really look at the use cases. I really look at what are people doing with it? Is there value for end users? A technology has no value without market application. And so I don't care what the technology is unless people can get value out of it. You know, the the market cap of the technology is going to be based on the, the total sum number of users and the value that that's created, right? And 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 the value that then can be captured by the business model, right? So with um with Bitcoin, you know, it's like, well, it was pretty obvious in 2013. It's like the Chinese government is, you know, restricting capital from flowing out of the country. And there's lots of billionaires there and there's lots of wealthy people, uh, you know, two, two billion people, right? <laughs> I guess it's actually, was it 1.4? 1. 1. Okay. But uh, you, get, you get the idea, like there's a lot of money um, that, that goes through remittances and Bitcoin as a technology 2013 was like a really good um, means to do that. And so, you know, what I was looking at was like, I looked at a report that actually Barry Silbert put out in DCG talking about you know, if, if Bitcoin was to capture the remittance market, then the market cap would be like three $3,000 per coin, right? And so, um, like, that's kind of like what I estimated. And that's why I like, started buying when it was like $100 and I bought a ton of it. And then it got up to like $1,000 and I bought on the way up and then got to $1,000. And then China, like, banned it being used in remittances. And then you saw, like, the value, like, plummet um, from there. Um, and for me, um, you know, when I saw 2017 ICOs, I was like, like, listen, I, I, I live in the world of like reality of like building a business. And I, and I, most of the stuff I do with lean startup is like talking to founders and sort of crushing their dreams back into reality by, you know, in a, in a constructive way of helping them understand what it actually takes to to be successful and what they need to do to be successful and why their ideas aren't going to work if you can't get anybody to use it. And so when I saw like the 2017 ICO craze and you see companies raising like you know tens of millions of dollars without anything built, it's like this is this is madness and this is stupid. And so I stayed very clear away from it at that point. Um and then coming back into the 2020 cycle, um that was when I first saw DeFi and NFTs, and I saw people actually using it, and I saw that um, there are real applications being built on top of Ethereum and other um, blockchains other than Bitcoin. And that was when I finally believed that this would this would be something. And then I worked backwards to understanding the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, and how decentralized Bitcoin is, how politically neutral it is, 
And that's when I really saw the value in Stack specifically because nothing will ever be created again that will be like Bitcoin in the sense that it'll be politically neutral, that'll be so decentralized. But then on the other hand, with Ethereum, they've actually proven that real people are going to get value out of this more so than just being, uh, you know, a collective delusion of money, right? Not that there's any problem with that. I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing, but there's a big difference between a new internet and a new, a new computing platform and the potential that that can be built on top of that with, you know, DAOs and new forms of governance and new forms of ownership than just, um, you know, solving the, the double spend problem, you know, through, through Bitcoin. Um, it's not to minimize Bitcoin because the fact that Ethereum is working and can work proves to me that Bitcoin will come full circle and has the potential to become a globally, um, to become the, the world's money. And, and so I think that maybe that's a little bit different take than how some people think, but, you know, I went from being like, okay, like I see the value of Bitcoin, but you know, how, how are we going to make this collective delusion work to really accept this as a global form of money? And then when I saw that actually so much more can be used on top of this, that this can actually be something that every single person on the earth has to use, not even just for money alone, but for things that cannot be built through the, the normal uh, paradigm of building software. Then I worked back into it that, hey, this is, this is really going to make it and that this is going to be far bigger than anybody else expected. And with Stacks, building that on top of Bitcoin, to me, um, seems like way more valuable than um, doing on top of Ethereum. Yeah, I've heard you, I was watching your past interview with Brian Harrington, shout out to Brian. And uh, I think, especially Bitcoin maxis, they they understand the the money part of it. Like Bitcoin is a store of value. It's it's one, that narrative. We won't talk about the ETH ultrasound. Like it's, that's, that's tomfoolery. But you, you mentioned something about the block space might be the most valuable thing about Bitcoin, kind of alluding to like, it might not just be the BTC that's the thing, it's the ledger, it's the settlement layer. And I think that's where a lot of people who still haven't kind of grokked Web3, they don't put enough weight on that. What do you think that they're missing? Um, what do you think will be the unlock? Because you, you've had that transformation where you were like, I was skeptical. Now I'm fully bought in. It's it's where we're going. Uh, why don't they? Why? What are they missing? What's? Yeah, I just don't think they ever ever think about building software. You know what I'm saying? Or like building apps. You know, like I think most of the develop. I think the vast majority of Bitcoiners, first of all, are not developers. Like the the ratio of developers in the Stacks community. I mean, in the Ethereum community compared to Bitcoin, it's like w way more developers in the, in the Ethereum community in terms of like the actual users of the of the network and then in stacks it's obviously even higher but i just don't i just think like the vast majority of people that are not developers they don't know anything about software they don't think they don't think about building products and then i think the ones that are developers you know they're more um you know they're not really like the entrepreneurial type developers like they're not thinking about like um you know, what future innovative technology can I build? Like they're more sort of like hardcore engineers where it's like, 
you know, there's like engineers where it's like, all they care about is like, how can I reduce the, uh, this, how can I make this server respond as fast as possible? Like, how can I reduce this from like 10 milliseconds to nine milliseconds by like changing my code to, you know, to do this or, you know, I mean, I've hired a lot of developers for my different companies and, um, they're great engineers, they're great developers, but they don't think big picture. They miss sort of the forest for the trees. And so I think there's a lot of developers in the Bitcoin community who, the ones who don't understand Web3, like they're really focused on the trees, they're not looking at the forest. And then everybody else who's against it, like they just don't um, know anything about software. And so you're starting to see actually a lot more of the developers, like Matt, Car- Matt Carallo, who was like a Bitcoin core developer for a long time. They're coming out here and they're being like, 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 listen, like this maxi toxic maxi stuff is bullshit. And we it's, it's incumbent upon us as a Bitcoin community, if we're going to even survive to look at what's happening in Ethereum and take the best practices that we can from them, study our competition, know them better than they know themselves, and then apply those things back to what we're doing, rather than just sort of like put our head in the sand and be like, oh, it's bullshit. You know, like, it's like, you know, a very childish reaction to to sort of just dismiss your competition. Instead, you should know your competition better than they know themselves. You know, keep keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Not to say that Bitcoin and Ethereum are enemies. I think that they are very complementary, but they are competition. So I think that's like, from my perspective, um, Bitcoin is not guaranteed to make it. Like, you know, the the Nazis could have won World War II. You know, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union could have been the first one to land on the moon. You know, the good guys don't always win. The fact that Bitcoin um, is so decentralized and so politically neutral, probably 80% of the world doesn't care. Like 80% of the users out there, they only care about like the actual, like using the product, right? Like people use Facebook every day. They don't care that Mark Zuckerberg is stealing all your data and, you know, you know, monetizing your private information, you know, to the extent that he can, people still use it. And so we need to be very vigilant to protect and and make sure that Bitcoin succeeds. And if Ethereum or, you know, if Ethereum, not just not trying to paint Ethereum as the bad guy here, but, you know, another chain gets way more users and way more usage. And that chain is not decentralized like Bitcoin and not, um, uh, neutral in the way that Bitcoin is, uh, Bitcoin could lose. And that would be a huge loss to the world and to society. And so it's incumbent upon us to implement the best of Web3 on top of Bitcoin so that Bitcoin can continue its hegemony and be the number one chain so that we can have the neutrality and decentralization of Bitcoin. Yeah, there's something weird about the Bitcoin community where they're, it's like, they almost feel like there's already so much momentum that I can just take my foot off the gas and like this train's gonna go. It's like, it's like we went to the moon in the sixties or whatever. And then there was like a, a period of like nothing until Elon yeah. hops back on that train. And Maxis are like the, we're gonna go to Mars just from the sixties launch. Like we're, we're just, I'm just gonna sit here and we're good to go. It's, we're gonna get there anyways. I don't think people realize that it takes that consistent effort over time by everyone, the entire community. And Ethereum is this perfect like experimentation basket that we can just pluck 
cherries from and put yeah. them over here. I mean, you know, shout out to Tom who created MySpace. He actually, I think he follows Stacks. He follows actually follows me on Twitter. But you know, like, hey, we could have had Tom from MySpace. He seems like a great guy. He probably wouldn't be, you know, monetizing and and stealing our data like Zuckerberg. But instead, we have Zuckerberg. So you know, the good guys don't always win. That's right. That's right. Okay, so spe- speaking of good guys, uh, Munib and Brian design. They were working on something on Bitcoin way back, and th- thankfully, they you know through their journey have created this new thing trying to unleash Bitcoin. But I'm curious about that kind of origin story. So, what what's the? How did you get connected to them? And what was the the first kind of meetings like when you met Munib and Ryan? Yeah, so I met Ryan at a. Um... Uh, incubator space called Dogpatch Labs in New York City. It was like the first co-working space incubator in the New York tech scene. This is like 2000, um, maybe 11, maybe no, maybe maybe 2010. Anyway, I um I was actually uh, intern for the venture capital fund that 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 ran the space uh, Polaris Ventures, and Ryan was also an intern there. Ryan's a couple years a couple years younger than me, and um, yeah, like we just kind of hit it off and started like going to different tech events together and made some mutual friends. Ryan helped me organize this meetup that we did called the uh, student New York tech meetup in the summer, which was like the New York tech meetup in New York is like huge. There's like, you know, 2000 people that attend. Um, and I was organizing like the student group. So we had like students from, you know, all the different New York city schools, Princeton, Harvard, you know, Columbia, NYU, et cetera, in sort of the Northeast region. And he was helping me organize that. And then, um, you know, a couple of years go by, I was doing the lean startup machine thing. We, um, you know, kept in good touch with Ryan, always a super, uh, super smart person and just great guy. And then he had um, uh, met Maneev at Princeton, I think through the computer science uh, group and through the entrepreneurship group. And then, um, yeah, Ryan was just like basically, uh, we had we had lunch together one day. He's like, "This is Maneeb, and you know we're doing this thing. You know we're trying to start a business. You know I've been doing all this lean startup stuff." So he's like asking asking my advice on on how to go to market and how to validate their ideas. And then um, I think it was like a, a a year a year goes by. I had actually just raised uh, about two million bucks for my company for a lean startup machine to build software, and. Um, you know, they were moving offices. I was like, Oh, like, let me give you guys like, there's two desks in my office, you know, you can come take it. And so they moved up and were working out of my office for a little bit. And, um, then they started raising money and I was just sort of like coaching Ryan on how to raise capital, just like I do in the, uh, the accelerator, a lot of the same, um, the same tactics and fun, uh, lessons that I impart on all of our portfolio founders. Um, they raised money super quickly. They got into Y Combinator. You know, I helped with their uh, their application, like rewriting their applications. Like I, you know, write emails for our founders. And um, yeah, from there, I mean, I wasn't that involved after that, but I was just kind of there at that really beginning start where they're raising their first round, and um, you know, was helpful with that. With that, and yeah, they went on to to raise from some of the best investors in the world and build a great, fantastic team. And I was just always impressed over the years at you know, their judgment and their, and their great timing, you know, uh, and even Ryan always had great timing with things. I think that they, um, they tried, they tried a lot of things that didn't work as well. You know, like when you look at like what the, um, 
the, the, the previous thing was called block stack, right? And so block stack was no token, just decentralized identity and storage, which is now, you know, Gaia storage and, and sort of the, has evolved also into BNS. Um, you know, they tried to do a lot of the things that, that the maxis are doing now for many years to turn into a business. And I think eventually they realized when they saw Ethereum taking off that like, okay, like, you know, they kind of came around to like, here's why we need a token. Here's a technological reason. Um, and that's when they decided to launch, uh, stacks, um, at that point. So, you know, they've been in this industry for the longest time. And actually when I first met them, when they were first getting to Bitcoin, like they were the only people I knew in the New York scene who actually had read the source code of Bitcoin. So like when I was talking about Bitcoin, you know, I was like very skeptical. Actually, my CTO at the time was like, you know, uh, you know, using Bitcoin to buy things on the dark, the dark web, you know, let's say I won't say too much more than that, but you know, that's how like other people I knew were using it. And I was talking to Ryan Maneeb and they were like, oh no, like this is how it works. And like, they were so in depth on like how it actually worked that I was like, oh man, this could be really be something. So that kind of got me into it. Unfortunately, I didn't stay into it, you know, lessons learned, but, uh, that's why that's why time travel is the most most powerful superpower because if you could just uh, time travel back to 2010, you know anybody could be a, a trillionaire now. One hundred percent. The the white combinator application was that were they were they applying with Blockstack at that time? It was actually called one one name at that point. So this was before Blockstack. I think they rebranded Blockstack um, after Y Combinator, and so one name was just decentralized identity on the blockchain you know when they what they did was they launched um if you like if you like google like one name you'll see some old screenshots you'll see like an old picture of me on the landing page and they um it was just a, le- a way to like register your your basically like bns you know it was basically like ens or bns um before that existed and they created a little landing page just like it was very actually like lean startup oriented like they created a landing page and they had people register and they like sent it out through social media and then they got like all of these like top Silicon Valley VCs to register their domain name, their domain name on it. It's such a simple, like one feature product. You know what I'm saying? It's what I always tell people, like one feature, like build a product that's one feature. If you can do that and you've identified with the killer features, you build one feature. That's the fastest way to be successful. That's literally what they did with one name. They built one feature, like just register your name. And then they got Barry Silbert, you know, from now from DCG to register his name, Naval Ravikant to register a name. All the VCs registered their names. And then that's how they raised their round like overnight because people were using their product. And when VCs see other VCs using a product, they get super FOMO. So <laughs> um, it was very clever and um, it was very lean and they validated the product and raised capital in one go. And um, then it began, later became Blockstack where they started to think about, you know, adding decentralized storage into their, and so, you know, it's kind of funny. Blockstack could have been ENS, it could have been IPFS, but finally it's become Stacks. And I think that in the end, it will be, it'll all be worth it. And Stacks could be something bigger than, than both of those combined. Very cool. Okay, I'm going to take another uh, left turn. I want to make sure we cover Stacks Ventures for, for a little pocket. So, first, just actually, before we jump into that, in your in your definition, because like, I'm learning as I go, I had an image of what VCs did, 
but that's that's been eroding over time that they're they're very busy I, I used to think like you guys just kind of like sit in the room and you just pluck out good companies and you write checks and they just wait and it's like it is what it is yeah, that's what that's what the later stage vcs do that's not what you know the accelerators yeah. we're really busy but you know once once we graduate you know then i'll be then i'll be on the on the uh at the golf course you know just chilling basically retired yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. what do you yeah so so in your in your uh in your mind what is a a properly working vc uh do what does that entail i mean i think it's you know it's easy to it's easy to you know kind of punch up against vcs they kind of they're kind of easy target um I think, um, you know, there's typically uh, three roles in a VC fund. So you typically have partners with different specializations. And there's kind of three different specializations that a VC um, firm needs. So one is um, investor relations. And so that includes meeting with LPs um, and networking with other VCs. That's like one sort of full-time, you know, thing is like some people are good at that. Some people aren't good at that. Uh, the next thing is like operating. So actually working hands-on with companies and like helping them to run their business and, you know, um, and helping them be more successful. Right. That's another role of a VC. The third role is then, uh, deal-making. So actually getting into, um, getting into deals. So being able to meet a founder, convince them to work with you, convince them to take your money, work out a deal get into the best deals. So those are the three um, roles a VC needs to have. I think typically most VCs are, you know, better at the first and third one. You know, they don't typically tend to be as good at the operating one and the operating one probably gets the least credit because um, really actually, I think the the most important one is just the deal making, right? Like if you can, if you can be good with, but it requires also investor relations, investor relations skills. But probably the most important skill of VC is like being buddies with founders. You know, you may have you may have no redeeming quality at all. You may know nothing. You may be have you may be uh, have no experience, no knowledge, no skills. But if you can make deals with founders, you can generate good returns as a VC. And so that's sort of the the unfortunate reality of of life and venture capital. And so when you say deal making, that's like being able to actually close cut the check because if it's like the when they say it's uh like default alive kind of thing like you need to have the money to sustain to get over that that chasm is that what you mean no what i mean is that there's a certain um companies where it's so obvious like let's say let's say like jack dorsey starts his next company okay everyone wants to invest in that okay for these like really obvious like what we do at the accelerator, we do Stacks Ventures is like is is not really that. Like we're investing much earlier than that. Like somebody like you know like look at look at what Manib did, right? Like he raised 150 million, you know, off the jump for trust machines. Okay, getting into rounds like that is what I mean by deal making, where it's like someone can can get you know anyone they want to invest in it. You know what I mean? And there's and there and VCs have to fight to get into it. You know how are you gonna how are you gonna get your, you know your money in that round, right? And so, you know, actually being a better operator really helps with that, right? But it may not be, it may not be like one for one related, right? Like just like you know when I was a, when I was a wrestler, you know, I thought like going to the gym, like the more I can bench press, the better I'll do as a wrestler. But really, actually, just technique mattered the most. You know, just mm. being really good at technique. 
Um, similar with deal making. If you're just really good at deal making, you know, maybe you don't know anything, you have no skills as an operator, but you can still get into into the the good deals. But what we do at Sax Ventures, you know, like of course we uh will in in we're trying to invest in like the most competitive rounds as possible, but really we're building a competency for identifying the hidden gems, you know, the diamond in the rough. We're we're discovering undiscovered talent and we're actually creating value as opposed to being the last trying to be the last person on the bus. You know, we're trying to be the first check in and identify really good developers who other people don't know about and and validate them and you know help them to fix maybe like one key thing with their company that's going to change them from being um you know one of many to one of a kind. So if you're if you're a founder and you're intrigued by stacks and you potentially be join the accelerator or get kind of in the purview of stacks ventures what are you looking for so i I think the the most important thing is like having a validated idea like if your if your idea is actually something that that makes sense it's going to work in the market that has validation behind it and fits into the patterns of what we're seeing be really successful so you know, the pre-accelerator is a really good um, place to go. Um, Albert is running a fantastic program there where it actually helps you to get feedback from all the different uh, entities in the ecosystem and figure out something that is really needed to be built that can help, um, that's going to get traction and going to make, be successful from the jump. You know, we're looking for founders who can find an easy way to do something difficult. So we're looking for, not necessarily an obvious idea, but when you tell me this idea, it's fucking obvious. This is a brilliant idea, and it's going to be make a lot of money and be really successful. Like we're looking for, and and that your way to execute it is is going to be very simple. And so it's kind of like if you ask me to think of one of those ideas right now on the spot, I probably you know I could maybe think of one or two just because we're always meeting these ideas. But you know the the bar for like having something that can be really successful really easily is like what we're looking for and then just seeing that the team is complete so that you have the classic three roles that we look for in a team is you know the the hustler the hacker and the hipster so the hustler is that business founder who's going to be really successful at raising who's charming who can attract talent who is um resilient you know that's coachable and can do marketing and is like is is able to go out there and be we say squeaky as a wheel you know the the squeaky wheel gets the grease you know tactfully and tastefully shameless out there promoting your the business and then the the hacker so you know the the blockchain engineer the smart contract engineer the back-end guy who's going to really build some world-class intellectual property and technology that's going to be um scalable and performant and um you know bring a lot of value and then the 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 hipster who's the the front end person the person who's going to build the ui the user interface so that your users can actually use that back end technology and create a world class product um whether it be a mobile app or a web app that you're going to be competitive in the in the broader market because to be successful as a startup the the key is to do as is to is less as more to do as little as possible but to be world class in everything you do and the only way to be world class in everything you do is to do as little as possible and so that's what's going to make you successful as a founder that's what we're looking to invest in because the bar for being successful 
is so high. It's so difficult and so challenging to be successful as an entrepreneur that you need to stack the deck in your favor. You know what I'm saying? You need to you need to go to Vegas with the card counters from MIT and know that you have a hot hand coming up because that's the only way to be successful. There's so many things that could go wrong and it could be it's it's so difficult um that I think if unless you want to start, you know, unless you want to start like a, a lifestyle business or a small business or consulting business, like those are much more easily to be successful because um, you're not going for venture capital style returns to actually build a unicorn business. Okay. We don't expect all of our founders to do that. Actually, we want, we want our founders to have, to have a lot of doubles and triples as exits, you know, as opposed to a unicorn, but even to do, even to do that, you know, you need everything in, in, in your favor. And it would be irresponsible of me to, um, invest in something where we're setting a founder off on a path where they're going to only result in pain in their lives because i've you know i've failed i've had a lot of things fail and the thing that people don't talk about is it sucks and it's extremely painful and it will literally take years off the end of your life and bring you to the edge of your own sanity and if you're and that's not something that i wish on anybody and so that's why I'm so strict when it comes to wanting founders to take every possible precaution in aligning their business to be successful. Perfect. For founders listening, that I don't think that could be understated of the it's like you want someone like Trevor in your corner to give you short-term pain for long-term benefit. And I've seen it myself where like when you're on a call, especially when I first joined, I was like, man, this guy, he's kind of a jerk. He's going hard right now. Mm -hmm. But over time, and I've I've seen you do it, like you you might call someone out in the community, but it's always like mission driven. It's always like the greater goal is there. And so it's like the people who don't give you, the people that do give you that constructive criticism, especially when it's like unflinching, like it's worth its weight in gold for sure. Because the, the long-term pain of you could have gotten good data. Someone could have told you this thing to make you do a right side of a left. It's just, you can avoid so much heartache. Yeah, man. It's like, it's hard. It's hard work. Like, you know, it'd be much easier not to be like, I try to be very delicate in being critical. Right. But it's, it's not fun. You know what I'm saying? It's not fun to, to, to be critical of founders, especially because, you know, i I love founders so much. You know, I am a founder, um, but the it's like sort of a moral responsibility to give your you know blunt and maybe unpleasant feedback all the time because most VCs they don't give any negative feedback. In fact, it's it's un it's it doesn't benefit me as a VC to give any founder any negative feedback ever because. What I should do as an as a as a VC is just like sort of treat everybody like an option. You know, what I'm saying like sort of like some VCs they take they take this perspective of like, you know, I'm just a money allocator and I'm not going to have any impact on any business, right? And so and that's actually a pretty good strategy because you're just gonna you're only going to pick the winners. You're not going to help create the winners, right? And if you just pick the winners, well, then someone who you think especially if you come from a, uh, you don't come from a, your VC comes from like a finance background or a background where you don't actually know how the sausage is made. You know, you could be talking to someone and think it's a dumb idea. 
a month later, they could be raising, you know, money from the best investors in the world. And so if you give them negative feedback or you like tell them that they're wrong or try to argue with them, you're only hurting your chances of making a deal with them to get in the round later. Right. And so the vast majority of VCs just nod their heads and say, Oh, that's great. I love it. In fact, when I raised money for my first company, I met with a hundred VCs who all said, Well, that's great. I love it. And not a not one of those 100 people actually invested. You know what I'm saying? They just nod their heads and then like, great, do you want to invest? And they're like, yeah, let me get back to you. You know, I, I definitely want to, you know, let, let me get back to you. And so, um, you know, but I just feel like uh, eventually the founders are going to look back on that and they're going to pre- appreciate that, even if they maybe dislike me in the in the short term or um, if I'm not able to deliver the feedback delicately enough, but at the same time, like that's how I would want, you know, to be treated. And I don't, I try as a VC, I think it's our policy. It's not like we never want to poo poo on anybody. You know what I'm saying? We want to try to explain and try to offer, uh, advice and give perspective. And ultimately we're not the, we're not in the driver's seat. You know, it's not our company. Um, we're just, sharing our feedback and thoughts and a way that hopefully can benefit the founders. Okay. I want to start to bring this to a close. I want to try a new style, maybe a little, a rapid fire ish session on some things that have been interesting me in the crypto space and just kind of like spitball your take on these. So uh, one of them is we're seeing, you know, there's Dolly now, which can create these amazing images, you know, out of thin air almost. Uh, more and more coding tools are coming along to make it easier to code, get, get GitHub Copilot, no-code tools. And so I'm seeing there's these, there's digital scarcity that blockchain kind of like brings, and then there's technical abundance that these tools keep layering on. How, how do you see that intersection? I know it's, it's kind of a crazy big, big topic, but like I, I don't know how to wrestle with that that idea. And so like as a VC, it seems interesting that that landscape seems to be shifting. How do you how do you view those two things of so digital scarcity and technical abundance tools coming online? Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, there are there are what are you making me think of? I don't have a well formed thought on this because you're just throwing this at me. But I think it's you know technology sort of happens on the edges, like at the extremes, right? So, um, it's yeah, it's fascinating. Digital scarcity. I mean, in some ways, you know. In some ways, we don't have pure digital scarcity. It's like really up to, you know, I mean, there's more and more NFTs out right there. There's more and more tokens and stuff like that. But it's more like digital scarcity in terms of like a flight a flight to quality, right? And I think that the accessibility of the internet tends to lead to power law outcomes, right? So when anything is a click, is a click away, you know, people only go for the, the first and the best, right? So... While there is a ton of abundance, we're also seeing a uh, a gravitation towards uh, consolidation of power law distribution of more inequality. You know what I'm saying? And so, in today's world, like inequality is actually raising more and more. Like polarization is increasing more and more. And I think it's just sort of a um, uh, we're we're in a society right now where I guess like most of the systems that we've known over the last hundred years are breaking down. Like capitalism is sort of breaking down in interesting ways. 
where we're seeing more in, uh, inequality. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is, man, but I think that in a way, blockchain to me represents um, like more of a meritocracy. So with respect to DAOs, with respect to ownership, I think that the, you know, the, the goal of Bitcoin, people say it's, which I agree with, is to separate money from the state, right? That's such a noble purpose. The goal of Web3 is to separate, you know, data and ownership from corporations to, to everyone and to allow more people to have voice in, in, um, in our economy and in, and with, uh, with our things that we own, right? Like our, our personal property. And so with respect to that, I think we're moving in the right direction. And that's why I see blockchain and Web3 being a panacea to a lot of the the um, ails that we have in our current society and sort of how capital, capitalism is breaking down. I hope that the sort of decentralized nature of Web3 can help provide a, a new alternative and a, a better direction for us to move forward in the future. That's a, a great response on the fly. Well done, Trevor. Uh, okay, la- last little spitball question I've been thinking about is uh, someone on Twitter brought up, they were getting in fights with Bitcoin maxis and they were talking about tokens are kind of like proxy equity. And that, that idea is fascinating where it's like equity is this idea that you can put in money and you get a percentage of a business, but there's like securities laws and there's accredited investor laws and it feels very archaic. It feels, it feels unattainable uh, to someone like me at my stage. But tokens feel much more transparent, uh, democratic in some sense, accessible. Uh, how do you think about this idea of like token tokens are kind of proxy e- equity? Yeah, I mean, that's what I think as well. I think that that the closest analogy to tokens is is a, is a form of equity, um, and it represents a ownership. It should represent an ownership share over over an open source protocol. And so, I think of tokens as like decentralized equity because it's only it's only not a security if it's decentralized. So, by that nature, uh, a token must be decentralized equity um, in order for it not to be a security. And so. There's many open source. Uh, open source has a long history, well before blockchain. If you look at Stacks, Ethereum, etc., they're all open source, and that would that's what makes it not a security. Is that there's multiple different companies and stakeholders. You're not dependent on any one um, company to to grow the thing, and so that's what makes it uh, a proxy of equity or a decentralized form of equity. Um, and that is super exciting because it allows it to, like you said, be uh, approachable for everyone you know what i'm saying and it allows it to be um transparent accountable and open to the world so you know i think that um you know we're moving towards a world where we don't need all these institutions to to oversee things we have the the skills and the tools to do it ourselves i think tokens are decentralized equity might be the bar of the episode like that's a t-shirt that's a bumper sticker that's that's so succinct i, I love that Okay, last uh, last question. I like to end on a high note. So thinking like forward looking. So I'm imagining like you, you can do whatever you want. Maybe maybe you're staying at Stacks Ventures, crushing it, and you're executing just like perfectly. Like all guns blazing, things are going smoothly. Uh, what do you see yourself in five years? What 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 is that like perfect dream, Trevor? Look like five years from now? Yeah. So. Um... My my ultimate goal in life, like my dream in life, is to start an orphanage. So 
you know, I love, I love educating. I love helping other people. And so if I, you know, make the big bucks someday, what I'd want to do is I want to invest all in that and starting like ideally the world's biggest orphanage. Cause I'd want to allow, um, and this is going to be like a, a high tech, like orphanage, like, like all the kids from this orphanage are going to go to Harvard, Stanford, or start their own, you know, schools that are better than Harvard or Stanford. And so, um, you know, just the, the ability to, you know, why I love working with early stage founders is because I can have such a big impact, right? Like I can take, we can take something that's like very moldable and make it, like I said, from one of many to one of a kind. And so the ability to, um, what I'm most interested in is like having the biggest impact possible on, you know, not like having a small impact on like a ton of people, but having a massive impact on a few people, um, to me is more satisfying. And that's kind of like what I did with, with my, my previous work at Lean Startup Machine, you know, like it was really like, um, about opening people's minds to a new way of thinking. And so to be able to do that with people who were given an unfair shake in life and to be able to help put, not just put them on the right path, but put them on the high road, the first class, you know, path, um, is kind of like my, my dream and my, my ultimate goal, uh, in my life. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, there's something about, you know, mindset's a cliche term that everyone kind of throws around, but like as someone who grew up very timid and shy, when I look at myself now, it's like a different person that I couldn't even fathom back then. And so even this podcast is kind of like that, where it's like one, I'm pushing myself, but two, I'm trying to like, hopefully inspire one or two people to listen to this episode and do that thing. Um, so yeah, that sounds, that sounds freaking incredible, dude. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, man. Well, that's why people love watching your your podcast, dude, because people know that you're just approaching it from such a genuine perspective. And I remember when I first saw you like recording on Twitter, I forget where I first saw you, but I was like, you know, super excited and jazzed about um, that you're, you know, starting this podcast. And I'm just like, so uh, grateful to you to see how far you've come and how much effort you've put into supporting the Stacks ecosystem. So, you know, hats off to you, Jake, for for all that you've done. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it means a lot. Okay. La- not, not even last question. Let's just close this out. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, you have a super strong Twitter handle, but uh, yeah, if they want to follow you or they want to get involved and maybe learn more about Stacks Ventures, where's, where's the places to go? Yeah. So follow me at TO on Twitter, just two letters at TO and then check out at Stacks Startups. So it's at Stacks Startups, two S's in the middle. And um, we're also stacksventures.io, stacks.ac for the accelerator. And of course, make sure you're following Stacks. Um, yeah, we'll have, our, we'll have our next cohort coming out um, towards the end of this year. So we'll be a, a launching application soon. If you, you know, want to be a part of building you know, the next internet on top of Bitcoin and the new digital economy on top of Bitcoin, um, this is the best place to build. It's an amazing community. And I think that the advantages of the technology are far superior to anything else out there. Perfect. All right. I think that's a fantastic way to end it. Let me not say it. No more words. Trevor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, my man. Yeah, my pleasure. Welcome to Built on Bitcoin. I know that things don't always go your way But I'll be right here
And now I've been trying to figure out a way to make it out Make it out cause I don't think about Everything going wrong